We're now in our second week in a study through the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. It's a brief pause or break through our longer series that we'll do throughout most of 2019, which is the Gospel of Matthew. On the screen behind me, you're going to see where we're at in terms of the structure of the book, and I hope this will be helpful for not only illustrating what today's message is in particular, but help you get a framework for the whole book. Uh, The first thing to notice is that this book, strangely, is written in two different languages. And so chapter 1 is all in the language of Hebrew, which is the common language the Old Testament's written in. But then this middle section, chapters 2 through 7, is the language of the Babylonians, Aramaic. And then it ends with more Hebrew. If we zoom in to chapters 2 through 7, which is where we'll be in the middle of that, you'll see on the next slide that there's a pattern that the book in the Aramaic section is in. And so if you follow along, you'll notice that chapter 2 has a story about a king, King Nebuchadnezzar. He has a dream. And if you remember from last week, that dream is about a series of kingdoms. But at the end of that chapter, the main point of chapter 2 is the kingdom of God will never be destroyed. It is supreme over all worldly kingdoms. Then in chapter 3, three Israelites, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refuse to bow down to the king's statue. They're then thrown down into a pit of death, namely a fiery furnace. But God graciously and miraculously raises them up and exalts them to a high position. In chapter 4, the chapter we'll be looking at, right in the middle of this Aramaic section, the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, he exalts himself, and as a result, God humbles him. In chapter 5, one of the Descendants of King Nebuchadnezzar, King Belshazzar, exalts himself, and as a result, he is humbled. Today we're going to look at those two middle chapters and see that at the center of this Aramaic section is this idea of people who exalt themselves, God will humble them. Then in chapter 6, notice the parallel of chapter 6 to chapter 3. Just like Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refusing to bow down to the king's statue, Daniel refuses to bow down to the king's statue as well. And what happens to him? He is thrown down into certain death, the death of the lion's den. But God miraculously preserves his life and raises him, and he is lifted to the right hand of the king. And then to finish our symmetrical parallelism, chapter 7. Notice the way that chapter 2 and chapter 7 The king had a dream about a series of kingdoms. In chapter 7, it is a dream, not of the king, but of Daniel. And it's about a series of kingdoms. But at the end of that dream, you'll see that God's kingdom will reign supreme over all other kingdoms. There you go. There's the book of Daniel in the middle section in a nutshell. So as we hone in on chapters 4 and 5, you'll notice that we heard already a section of Daniel 5 read to us and a section of Daniel 4. To recap those stories, I want to just briefly point out that both of them have a king, a Babylonian king, and the king is going to puff themselves up. They're going to make claims and do things that are quite arrogant and proud, and then that will lead to their humility. And so in the first story, it's King Nebuchadnezzar, and the second story, it's King Belshazzar. What we're going to find today is that their problem is pride. It's not just their problem, it's also our problem. And the second thing we're going to see is that their solution, because one of the two kings humbles himself, as was read earlier in the service. 
And that humility led to his being lifted back up and his kingdom expanding. So the solution is humility, and we'll see that that is also our solution. Those are your two main headings for this message in particular. Their problem and our problem is pride. Their solution and our solution is humility. More specifically, I want to break down the first point into two subcategories. What kind of pride are we talking about? The problem of relying on worldly wisdom is what I want you to focus on first. Look at chapter 4 with me. I'm going to start reading in verses 4 through 8. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies of the vision and the vision of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, and the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, who was named Belshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream. And if you pause there, you should have freshly in your mind what we covered last week in chapter 2. King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream in chapter 2. And nobody knew what it meant. In fact, nobody even knew what the dream was. And he asks all of the magicians and astrologers, can you tell me what my dream was? And then tell me what it means. And no one knew except Daniel. After Daniel prayed to God, learned what the dream was and what it meant. Now, this same king has another dream. And this time, as he has this dream, he's alarmed by it, as the text says. And what does he do? What's his first reaction? Well, not to ask Daniel, to go back to his enchanters and his worldly wise men, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, and the magicians. And then that's why it says in verse 8, finally, at last, Daniel came in after all of them, like, oh, we have no idea. The worldly wisdom was exhausted, and it came found wanting. Daniel comes in, and notice that he's not called Daniel. He's called Belshazzar the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. That should remind your memory to chapter 1, when Daniel is given a new name, a Babylonian name, instead of God is my judge as his name, he's given a Babylonian name that means Bel, the god of the Babylonians, is my protector. And we talked about it being a slap in the face that they would reference him in this way. And yet again, the king is referencing Daniel like this. And it goes to beg the question, as chapter 4 opens up, is King Nebuchadnezzar really believing in the God that Daniel believes in? Or is that just political speech to get the Jewish people on his side? Look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. So when he says Most High God, he's referring to Yahweh, the Jewish God, the one singular God. He then says, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Many people might say that right here, it seems like after chapters 1 through 3, the king converts, he's now a believer in the monotheistic God of the Jewish people. Hooray! But then as you read chapter 4, it seems like, 
As soon as something happens, he turns quickly to his former gods and ways and worldly wisdom. So either he converts and has a relapse, or he never was truly converted and is just giving some lip service to the Jewish people. Either way, what we see here is the problem of relying on worldly wisdom. He still believes in many gods. He still calls Daniel by the god of the Babylonians. And finally, Daniel comes in. If you look down at verse 18, you'll see this repeated again. Chapter 4, verse 18. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belshazzar, Tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. He knows that Daniel has power, but he is again not acknowledging that it's the sovereign God, Yahweh, the most high God who's empowering him to interpret these dreams. And so there's a parallel between chapter 4 and 5, as I pointed on those slides. In chapter 5, as we look at the beginning of that chapter, you have a predecessor of King Nebuchadnezzar. And he's making a great feast for thousands upon thousands and drinking wine. And this feast with all these lords and concubines includes taking the temple cups and goblets that are made of gold that were out of the Jewish temple. So if you remember this big story, Jewish people are now living in the town of Babylon Because they were besieged, they were destroyed, they were taken over. And so now you have these people living in a foreign land, Daniel and his friends and all the other Israelites. And so now you have the booty of their conquest, the goods from their destroying and devouring the city of Jerusalem. And it says that one of the predecessors of Nebuchadnezzar is now celebrating and getting drunk and drinking and partying it up with the goblets that came from the temple of Israel. The best comparison I could give to you is if somebody were to say, hey, I'm going to take home this Bible and I'm going to take the pages off and start rolling it up with some sort of drug paraphernalia and start getting high and have a good party. Would, would you say, that's kind of like blasphemous. Like, whoa, how sacrilegious are you to take the pages of the Bible for your own amusement and partying and joy? Like, that's crazy. That's what's happening in chapter 5. That's what Belshazzar is doing. And as they praise and they drink to their gods, something crazy happens. As we heard read in verses 5 and 6, a hand starts writing on the walls of the palace, and it says the, key, the king's knees start shaking. And essentially, I think you could say, he passes out. He's like, whoa, he faints and falls over. In verses 7 and 8, what does he do when he is alarmed by this? The same thing that his father did. Father in terms of predecessor. Because I don't think it means it's a direct descendant down. You'll see in a moment that this king is probably three or four children down the line. Anyway, look at verses eight and 7 and 8. You'll notice that when trouble comes... The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. He declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and they shall be third in the ruler ruler of the kingdom. And then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Do you see the parallel between the two stories? Both kings have some sort of crazy experience. On the one hand, a dream. On the other hand, writing on the wall. And as this happens, they are perplexed. They're confused. They're afraid. They pass out. And so then they turn. They turn to help. 
They need assistance. And they turn to worldly wisdom. Daniel is alive in both stories. He's already done this twice. He's already interpreted the dream. He's already well known amongst the community as being this man who has the Spirit of God within him. Don't you see that their problem is pride and reliance on the wisdom of the people around them? And don't you see that that is your problem? Reliance on worldly wisdom. Something bad happens in your life. Sickness, illness, some sort of problem relationally. Who do you turn to? Doctors of medicine, the PhDs of philosophy? What happens when the government is shut down for weeks? Who does CNN and Fox News turn to? PhDs, the worldly wise men, don't they? How many times have they bowed before the God of the heavens and prayed and asked God, would you help us and humble ourselves? We turn to the Google and the internet for worldly wisdom whenever something comes up that we don't know how to explain what has happened. Is your first thought to turn to God when you are perplexed or confused or don't understand? Have not many different men and women been put in your life, and through these men and women, God has given time and time again counsel to you, wise, godly, biblical counsel. But do you turn to them when you're trying to figure out a big decision in your life? Or do you just inform them, oh, by the way, this is what I decided to do? Do you see how we, too, over-rely on worldly wisdom? In fact, I want to illustrate this in another way in this passage. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Notice that the king's name is Belshazzar. History experts, for the longest of times, have told Christians and Jews that the Bible cannot be trusted. Because Babylon never had a king named Belshazzar. So who are you going to trust? Modern historians or the Bible? For decades after decades, the wise men of the scholarly guild will tell you, don't trust the Bible. It has historical inaccuracies. The worldly wise men are higher and more supreme and look down upon the Bible. Funny thing is, not too long ago, scrolls and historical inscriptions were found in an archaeological dig that showed that the last king of Babylon was named Nabonidus, which is not this king, is it? Nabonidus. It's Belshazzar. Oh, well, what do we do with that? other than find out that Nabonidus left Babylon and spent time in the desert, what we would call today Saudi Arabia. And he left his son in the inscription that was found in the scrolls named Belshazzar to rule over his kingdom. Go back to verse 7 of chapter 5. He says that whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck. And he shall be which ruler in the kingdom? Third. Why would it be third and not second? Because Belshazzar is second to his father, Nabonidus. Nabonidus is the king. He has left the kingdom, and so he has put his son, Belshazzar, 
over and in charge of the kingdom. He is the second in line. And so he's saying, look, I don't have rights to give you the first or the second spot, but because I'm second in command, if you can interpret this dream, I will give you the third place in the kingdom. In other words, the Bible was right all along. And the worldly wise men that would tell boys and girls in colleges and universities, don't trust the Bible, it's historically inaccurate, proved themselves to be humbled and incorrect. Do you see the point? How many college freshmen went to their philosophy classes or their history classes and were told, you cannot trust the Bible And these college freshmen put their trust in worldly wisdom and gave up believing in the Bible. Time and time again, Isaiah 40 verse 8 proves true. The grass will wither, the flowers will fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. We must be a people who hear and tremble at God's word. Not a people who put our hope in the scholarly and academic community as the ultimate authority. Hopefully you know that I'm doing more education not because it's bad, but because it's helpful. But should my hope be in the academic community or in the Word of God? This is the first problem, the problem of these kings, the pride of worldly wisdom. The second problem I want to highlight It's pride, but more particularly, it is the pride of plagiarism. Plagiarism is obviously when you take credit for someone else's work. Boys and girls in school, you should know that if you want to write a paper or a project, you shouldn't steal one from the internet and say, oh, that's mine, and put your name on the top. If you're a musician, you shouldn't take a song or a music melody and completely steal it and not give credit to the one who first came up with those song lyrics or melodies whether it's a book, a poem, we're supposed to give credit to where credit is due. As we look at these two kings, we see how both of them have the problem of taking credit for something that is not theirs. Look back in chapter 4, verses 19 and following, and you'll see that the pride of Nebuchadnezzar is a taking credit of his kingdom and all his power when it was God who gave it to him to begin with. Follow along as I read a longer section, verse 19 through 33. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let, you, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, And it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in which food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown, and you have become strong. Your greatness has grown, and it has reached to the heavens, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be 
with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be accepted to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled amongst, against Nebuchadnezzar. And he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Did you notice what the turning point was for Nebuchadnezzar? There was the dream that he had that his great kingdom that was providing for all the ends of the earth was going to be chopped down. and He's going to be humbled to be a beast in the ground. And so he heard this. It was a warning. And, And he was encouraged to repent and give kindness to the poor and pursue righteousness and defend those who are oppressed. But instead, in verse 28, it says, after 12 months of hearing that interpretation from Daniel, he's on the roof of his palace. And then look at verse 30. And the king said, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. I built it. It is my glory. And then it was taken from him for his pride. He became a beast. He was humbled to the ground. He ate grass like an animal. The dew of the ground as he slept outside became his bed. When you take credit for what God gives you, you become less than human. That's the point of Daniel's interpretation. That's the point of this story. You become like a beast, like an animal, less than human. When you take credit for what God has given you, you do not image God the way you should. This is what sin is. It is a distortion of the image of God. You were made to rule over the animals and the beasts in Genesis chapter 1. But in Genesis chapter 3, an animal, a beast, namely a serpent, tempts the first humans to instead of reflecting God, to become gods and take credit for all that God has done and sit on the very throne themselves. This is the problem of pride in chapter 4. It's the problem of pride in chapter 5. 
Let me read that now. So you can see the parallel yet again of the king boasting proudly, arrogantly, needing to be humbled. We're going to start in verse 10 of chapter 5. Then the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit of knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams and explain riddles and solve problems was found in Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show me the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be left to yourself, and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and language trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. And whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling like that of the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God who is in, in whose hands is your breath, and who are all your ways you have not honored. Then, from this presence, the hand was sent, and the writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter, Mene. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. As you saw in verse 22 of this chapter, it's quite plain what the problem of Belshazzar is. 
Verse 22. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. The problem of the kings is a problem of pride, of plagiarism, of taking credit for what God alone gave to them. Even the very breath in their mouth, he says, but the God in whose hand is your breath. Not even the next breath you and I breathe comes except from God's hand. The good things we have, we act like are ours. This is our problem too. The pride of plagiarism. Is your money yours? Is your intellect yours? Is your home yours, your possessions? Some of you that use your beauty or good looks to win favors, did you just wake up one day and say, I'm going to make myself beautiful? What family you were born in and raised with, the place that you now live and dwell, the situation to which you found yourself. How many of us are so shaped by the family we grew up in and the experiences of our childhood? How much of that did you have control over? As 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, what you have, you did not receive. Or no, what have you that you did not receive? It's a rhetorical question. Nothing. Everything that you have and possess is something that you have received from God. And Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians, now if you received it, why do you glory as if you did not receive it? This is what I mean by the, pli- the pride of plagiarism. Let's take one example that I mentioned, money. If you were in a financial situation where you needed to pay off a big debt, let's say $10,000 needed to be paid off this week. And you went to someone you knew had a lot of money and you told them, hey, I will pay you back every penny. I need to borrow $10,000 immediately. What if they told you, listen, if I give you this money, I want you to receive it as a gift and at the most, give me 10, 15, 20%. But you keep the rest as a gift. What would you think? Do you think that's generous? That's kind? The p- person came and said, Look, I'll pay back every single dime. If you would just give me $10,000, that would help a lot, and I'll pay you back. And they're like, No, no. You just give me back maybe 10%, maybe 15, 20%. How many people bulk at the idea? Put a stiff arm up to the Bible and God and say, no. Why would I even consider giving back to God through caring for the poor or providing for the needs of the church, 10, 15, or 20%? As if that was your money? How generous is a God who's given you anything that you have? Walking around on this earth and acting as if we did not receive it and glorying in our money as if it's our own. Why wouldn't we want to give more than 10, 15, or 20% of our time and energy if we're able? The point is, is that many of us commit cosmic plagiarism in various ways of our lives. And so may all of us consider in many areas, not just money, in what ways we're seeing the things that we have, the possessions, the capabilities, they're not ours. Especially if you say, I was bought with the price of the blood of Jesus. That's the king's problems. It's pride at its core, 
Pride, as we often know as Christians, is the core of so many of our problems. We could go on for hours if we wanted to, to talk about how pride is at the core of your bitterness. The feelings of discontentment and your inability to be happy and satisfied with what you have because you feel like you deserve better. How about worry and anxiety as if you know better than what God does about what's going on in your life or what's about to come and trusting him for the next moments or acting as if you know better in regards to what you should currently be doing. How many of you are overwhelmed because it's the pride of thinking, I need to be doing all these things? Says who? The proud man or woman, but the humble, repentant sinner declares that God alone knows and gleans daily in his word and around the people to humble themselves. The solution we see in these stories is the solution of humility. Let's look at that again at verse 22 of chapter 5. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. And look at the very last verse of chapter 5. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 72, 62 years old. Greek history shows that when the Persians took over Babylon, the night before, so this is again extra biblical sources confirming again what we see in the scriptures here. Greek historians say that the night before they were taken out, it's well documented that there was this giant feast of a party held by the king. Isn't it interesting that Daniel chapter 5 has told us that tidbit all along here in the Jewish scriptures? A great feast, proudly beating his chest, thinking about how great he is, only to be taken out that very night. He didn't humble himself. In comparison, flip your eyes over to Daniel chapter 4 and notice that Nebuchadnezzar does. Starting in verse 34, as was read earlier, Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes to heaven and his reason returned to him. And he blessed the Most High and praised and honor him who lives forever. And then look at these beautiful words coming out of a Babylonian king. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At that same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor, they returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Do you see the difference between the two kings? One of them remains stuck in his pride, and it leads to his downfall and even his death. The other king takes the words that he was given 12 months ago and applies them. He turns his eyes to heaven. He renounced of his sin. He repented of his pride. And he started to care for his kingdom in the light of the glory of the sovereignty of God. Now, it's interesting when you read the idea that he was out of his mind, his reason returned to him, as you saw in verse 34. 
my reason returned when I lift my eyes to heaven. And then you see later in verse 36 that his majesty and his glory and the greatness of his kingdom was then expanded. I find it interesting that many of us, if we were to read this from a worldly perspective, would just read of this person as being clinically insane, wouldn't we? I mean, if a guy is outside for seven years eating grass and sleeping outside and letting his hair grow out and his nails get so long that they look like eagle claws or something, you would say, yeah, that guy's crazy, like, stay away. He needs to go to an insane asylum. What's interesting is that as we look at that from just one angle, the material world, sure, we could conclude that, but from the Bible's perspective, we see that the root problem isn't just chemical imbalances in his brain, but the pride of sin, the sin of pride, that is. I I make that point only to say that one of the ways we need to humble ourselves is to remind ourselves that the world's wisdom will only go so far. Too many times we depend on that worldly wisdom of the medical and doctors and professionals without going a step further and saying, could there also be a sin problem? It's not a one or the other, it's a both and, and Christians should hold both of these as helpful for our diagnosis of people. The sin of pride and the solution of humility and being kind to the oppressed And renouncing sin was why Nebuchadnezzar was restored. Not just his mental capacities, but his kingdom. So is this your solution? Well, it needs to be. Our solution needs to be humility and repentance and being kind to the oppressed and not proudly domineering kingdoms and the things of the world. At this point, I was confronted with an article that I came across this week that I want to share a snippet of it with you. It's by a a white pastor who says that he has a problem with the Bible. It's called, My Problem with the Bible. He said, I have a problem with the Bible. Here it is. I am not an ancient Egyptian. I am not... Sorry, let me read that again. I am more like the ancient Egyptian. I am more like the comfortable Babylonian. I am more like the Roman citizen in his villa. My problem is my perspective. I'm trying to read the Bible for all it's worth, but I'm not reading it as a Jewish Hebrew slave suffering in Egypt or being conquered in Babylon. I am not a first century Jew living under the Roman occupation. I read the Bible like a citizen of the superpower that is the United States. I was born among conquerors. I live in what we might call the empire. One of the most remarkable things about the Bible is that we find its narrative being told from the story and perspective of the oppressed and the poor and the enslaved and the conquered and the occupied. This makes it so prophetic. So many times throughout our history, it is written by the winners. But in the Bible's case, The genius of the Hebrew scriptures is that they were written from a bottom-up perspective. Imagine the history of America being told by the Cherokee Indians or African slaves. That would be a different way of telling the story. And that is exactly what the Bible does. It's the story of Egypt told by the slaves of Egypt. It's the story of Babylon told by the exiles of Babylon. It's the story of Rome told by the oppressed Christians of the first century. 
Every story is told from this vantage point. It has a bias. Every story has a bias, and the bias of the Bible is from the vantage point of the underclass. So what happens when you and I lose sight of that prophetic, subversive vantage point? What happens if those on top start reading themselves into the story, not as the imperial Egyptians and Babylonians and Romans, but as the Israelites? Well, then you start getting a bizarre phenomenon phenomenon of the elite and the entitled, using the Bible to endorse dominance. This is why Roman Christianity did the Crusades. This is why colonists in America used the Scriptures to talk about America as their promised land and the new habitants as Canaanites to be conquered. This is the whole story of European colonialism. This is the Jim Crow laws. This is American prosperity gospel preaching. This is the domestication of Scripture and making the Bible dance for our little jig of our own amusement. In other words, are we listening to the oppressed in the Bible? Are we listening to the oppressed in the story of Daniel? So what I want you to think about as we conclude. Are the poor and the oppressed in our lives ministry targets or are they people? People to be heard from, people to be listened, people that need to speak into our lives in the same way you heard from the four ladies downstairs. Those with special needs are going to help us just as much as we can help them. If we do not have this kind of humility, we will never listen to the Christ who humbled himself, who became less than human, not by becoming an animal and eating grass, but by bearing the weight of the cross. He was fully God, but yet became fully man, not just any man. Isaiah 53 says he had no form or majesty that we should look upon him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with much grief. He was rich, but he became poor. He was righteous, but he became sin so that we could become righteous. He had it all, and he deserved to take all the credit for all the glory of the heavens and the earth but he laid that glory aside. And he hung from a cross and humbled himself to become the solution of humility for all of us. This is not just the solution for King Nebuchadnezzar. It is a solution for King Jesus. And that's why it's your solution. As Philippians 3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mindset among yourselves, that which is yours in Christ Jesus. Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. And therefore, because of that death and because of that humility, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In chapter five, there's a king who in the night before he dies is a proud, unrighteous king and throws a big party with a goblet from the temple to just show the height of his pride and arrogance against God. There's another king, several hundred years later, who takes a common cup, not from the temple, 
and has a last meal with his disciples. And he tells them that this bread and this cup will now be the sign of the solution to all the pride in the world, the humility of his life being given for us so that we could then feast and revel, not in the kingdoms of this world and not in the glories of wars won, but glory in the cross and glory in the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And this, my friends, will be a feast that will last forever and ever. Let's pray together. Our Father, we want to thank you for Christ. We want to thank you for the King of kings who had it all and laid it down. Who hung on a cross naked. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that it is not steps. Steps that we need to take to become more humble, but it is the vision, it is the glory of Jesus that changes and transforms our hearts to make us worshipers and lovers of a God who would do something like this. That we would behold him and become transformed. So as we behold him now, would you do just that? Would you transform us? Would you increase our love for Jesus the Savior? Jesus the true king who humbled himself. And did not deserve death like Belshazzar did, but took it on anyway. What love and sacrifice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.